politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. According to one recent estimate, the world is more than 2,000 billionaires. Many of them are being asked to give half of their fortunes to charity. The Giving Pledge was created by Bill Gates, his wife Melinda, and Warren Buffett. In a 60 Minutes interview, the founders say the super wealthy need to make a big commitment. Anybody here know what the average contribution is? $27. Ten years ago, the World Economic Forum asked the question, what must industry do to prevent a broad social backlash? The answer is very simple. Just stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes. The question is, why is it that this era of extraordinary elite generosity, which is real, happens to coincide with an age of extraordinary elite hoarding? The very same class of billionaires and plutocrats who do so much to give and constantly talk about how much they give, have a monopoly on the future in this country. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of the Progress Network, and I am here as always with Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of the Progress Network. And we are having these conversations as an outgrowth of the work that we're doing as part of the Progress Network. From the perspective of what can we do to ameliorate our problems, how can we steer ourselves into the future that we hope for and not plunge into the future that we fear? So today we're going to talk about something that doesn't get talked about a lot in a focused way, and that's philanthropy and, and giving, whether that's really rich people giving a huge amount of money or a lot of other people giving a little amount of money. We are in a moment where, particularly coming out of the pandemic, people have given a lot of money away in the tune of billions and billions of dollars. And that's true of, you know, in the political process, small donors helping campaigns. It's true of billionaires and the billionaire pledge of give away half of your money uh, and do something, be of service, give back. If you have the means, it's incumbent upon you, morally incumbent upon you to give back. You know, we talk about these things a bit and it's usually from a negative skew of too many wealthy people unaccountably using their money to pursue agendas and passions that may in fact do social good but aren't accountable to the political process or the democratic process. But either way, we don't actually have a lot of conversations about what does this world look like? There's an entire world of philanthropy and we're gonna talk to uh, one person who's deeply engaged as a practitioner, Rachel Pritzker, and has thought deeply about both the pros and cons, advantages and the failings, and someone else who has built a platform called Inside Philanthropy, David Callahan, 
and has written a book uh, about philanthropy, who, who is steeped in this world as a honest broker and as an information source for people engaged in the world of giving and foundations and probably knows more about the world of giving than anybody else. So Emma, tell us about Rachel and David. So Rachel Pritzker is a member of the Progress Network, um, and she's also the founder and president of the Pritzker Innovation Fund. She's also chair of the board of the Breakthrough Institute. We have another member who's uh, part of the Breakthrough Institute. I highly recommend checking them out. And she's also a board member and co-chair of the energy program at Third Way. She's the co-author of something called an Eco-Modernist Manifesto, which outlines an alternative approach to climate mitigation and human development. So if you're interested in climate change, check that out for a refreshing approach. And the other person who's going to be joining our conversation today is David Callahan. And as Zachary mentioned, he's the founder and editor of Inside Philanthropy. He's written extensively on trends in philanthropy, American culture, public policy, business, the whole gamut. And he's the author most recently of a book called The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in a New Gilded Age. And we're going to do this conversation a little bit differently. We're going to start with Rachel and go over some of the big issues confronting American society, democracies worldwide, and giving in general. And then we're going to bring David into the conversation uh, to add more dimension and depth toward the end. Perfect. Let's do it. So I'm so excited to be having this conversation with someone who's both thought about the nature of philanthropy and society and is also, for lack of a better word, a philanthropist. And... I think about this a lot, you know, part of the Progress Network certainly started as an outgrowth of my own philanthropy, although I've never actually used that word in conversation with anyone. You don't have to be embarrassed. I know, like, you know, <laughs> I was at a conference a few weeks ago and this came up and there was a discussion about tax breaks and the way the American tax code certainly encourages giving at all levels because of your ability to essentially write off, you know, X percentage of every dollar you give that you would otherwise have paid in taxes. And someone was saying they thought this was a you know a terrible skew. And another person pointed out that long before the tax code, uh, Americans in particular have been relatively philanthropic, right? There's been a long tradition of this, and that the the tendency to see the contemporary tax code as a cause of this is probably historically inaccurate. That there's been a lot of this, and the tax code actually reflected the amount of philanthropy that was in place in the 19th and early 20th centuries. But it does raise this kind of continually churning question about, you know, where are we and what's the role of this? And I know that's a big question, but it's one that you've thought about a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, this goes all, all the way back to de Tocqueville, who, you know, wandered around our country um, observing what was different about um, early America as compared to um, Europe and in his case, France. And one of the things um, that really struck him was, and I guess he didn't use the word philanthropy, but there was sort of a, a culture of mutual aid and of naturally arising self-organizing civil society. Um, and it was very robust. So I think civil society um, and you know philanthropy, uh, to just use that word, uh, is a, a deep and longstanding part of American culture. And I think, you know, it's also on the positive side um, or in defense of it existing is a key bulwark against autocracy, which is why we see all forms of voluntary association and 
philanthropically supported organizations, you know, all, all forms of civic civil society attacked and dismantled throughout history when autocrats want to strengthen their hold on power. So I, I don't think that should be overlooked. I'll just like, I guess, mention the elephant in the room, which is that both of you just now were a little bit awkward about saying philanthropy, right? Which is interesting. <laughs> like why be embarrassed about it if we're saying, you know, that it's a, a positive thing? Yeah, especially given that the Greek meaning of the word is like love of people. You should be, you certain shouldn't be apologetic about it. I think it's probably that it has both negative connotations given the amount of pushback about it's just something that wealthy people do and can get away with, which is an odd trend, but it is the trend. And so the word is now tinged with things that have nothing to do with the original root. And it's also, you know, it can kind of sound like a pretentious word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I mean, it's also a word that Tocqueville didn't, as far as I know, use directly. Yeah. Um, so I think that was part of my hedginess, but in general, I do think there are, there is a lot of criticism currently of philanthropy and like maybe, you know, even a question about whether it should exist. That is, I think, a new conversation. Um, you know, there are all sorts of critiques, some of which I think are more valid than others. I think one of them is this idea that philanthropy is sort of like reputation laundering for people who are trying to kind of undo the harms of, of earning that money in the first place. To, you know, to which I would say, well, not all wealth is ill-begotten and certainly not all philanthropy is undertaken like just for public perception or ego reasons. Some of it is, but most people in philanthropy that I know are like good people doing good things. Um, and I would say like even the biggest, baddest boogeyman of the left, the Koch foundation. Sure. I disagree with a lot of what they do, but they also focus on things like that they genuinely think will help people like the United Negro college fund and, have an increasing focus on how to reduce political violence. Um, so I think the black and white kind of way of looking at the at a really big and hugely diverse sector just I don't know it, it seems real it seems simplistic. And also why should we discourage people with resources from doing things they think would make the world better? Obviously there are downsides to a lack of accountability and that's like another topic uh, and another area of critique where I think we really should have some conversations. Um, but the upsides are that, especially in a time where we're not sure um, where our government isn't super functional and we're not sure it's going to be friendly to the democracy and where you really can't always count on business to do anything beyond their bottom line, wouldn't a philanthropic sector that isn't accountable to government actually could have a benefit? Um, at least um, because it would be able to counterweight some of the anti-democratic forces. I mean, one perfect example, which I think obviously is not ideal, but Congress was so deadlocked around funding the necessary, uh, putting the necessary money in to fund administering the 2020 election that philanthropic money had to come in and actually for the first time ever pay for us to run an election, which of course in an ideal world that would not happen. The government would just fund that stuff. But thank goodness we had, uh, you know, quote unquote, unaccountable sector that could sort of swoop in and go, oh, this is really important um, and it's not going to happen any other way. 
For another perspective, Adam Ruins Everything host and investigative comedian Adam Conover questions some of the motives behind philanthropy. Every time a billionaire even hints at doing something charitable, we treat them like saints. Mega rich guys like Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and Mark Zuckerberg have the media falling all over them. But in reality, this billionaire philanthropy is not as selfless as it seems. What are you talking about? Why, we're literally giving our money away. Not quite. Take the Chan Zuckerberg initiative. When Mark Zuckerberg announced his plans to give away 99% of his Facebook shares, the press covered it like he was giving all his money to charity. But in reality, he actually gave those shares to an LLC that he controls. And he can do almost anything he wants with that money, including invest it in for-profit ventures. For all intents and purposes, the money is still his. It's funny you talk about reputation laundering, Rachel, because um, I just saw a New York Times article that came out that was like, we really don't, we haven't been able to identify most of the super billionaires in the world. You know, they're quiet working behind the scenes. And it's interesting because I think a lot of this narrative that people have about philanthropy is tied to these like mega names that people know mostly from tech like Zuckerberg and uh, Elon Musk and Bezos and things like that. But the, the, picture that you're painting is a little bit different. Like you said, there's, it's a diverse sector. So I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit more detail about that, about some of the things that might be going on that people aren't necessarily, you know, reading about or seeing on Twitter. So I think there are a few big funders who sort of get all the headlines because whether it's because of big dollars like the Gates Foundation or um, because uh, they're the super rich like Bezos, but there are a lot of funders who are not doing anything to kind of publicize their their work, their their funding, their causes, who are having um, important impacts. But I mean, I know a lot of sort of low-key funders out there who, you know, as a result, I'm probably not going to, I'm not going to mention their names. Yeah. <laughs> but who are like trying to figure out like where are the key levers where I could have a positive impact, whether it's to make government more effective, um, like at delivering services to people, which is like not sexy. It's not going to get a headline. It's boring. Mm. It's long-term. And that takes like a while to figure out. And you're not doing that in public necessarily. It's not a big splashy thing. It's funny. So there are two things going on from an American context, right? One is uh, at the higher end, a lot of these questions and debates have been going on since at least the middle of the 18th, 19th century, right? And a lot of the contemporary tensions and debates stems a little bit from Andrew Carnegie and the gospel of wealth and the idea that if you've made a lot of money in your lifetime, it's incumbent upon you to basically give that back, give it away. I mean, if you die with wealth, you've you've failed somehow in the social contract. That at least was Carnegie's gospel of wealth thing. And as a result, you know, there are all these Carnegie charitable organizations. Some people view that the billionaire philanthropists of the day are the modern Carnegies and Rockefellers. If you look at who the great philanthropists, you know, of a hundred years are, and you think about Carnegie and Rockefeller, I mean, we have Carnegie and Rockefeller now. I mean, Carnegie is Warren Buffett. Right. He gives us the moral reason why you should give. I mean, you know, as Carnegie said, you know, he who dies rich dies in disgrace. That was from a 60 Minutes broadcast in 2013. I want to maybe uh, switch a little gears to the current trends in like what's chic and hip in philanthropy. And a lot of it, I think, as it's become a lot of tech wealth has come to dominate the scene, 
a lot of that ethos of Silicon Valley and tech has also come to dominate the the thinking. Um, one of which is like it has to be scalable, right? Any if you're going to give away a lot of money, it's got to be scalable. It's got to be. Is that a good trend? Because it's clearly a trend. Yeah, I think these are two scalable and measurable are two separate issues, which um, I have different responses for. <laughs> um, uh, I think when, especially when folks in tech um, talk about scalable, in my experience, they often mean, how do you make a business out of it that will make money? Which I've talked to so many people in tech who think initially like, how do I, you know, for the most part, it's uh, me talking to people who want to have a positive impact on climate change. And they spend time thinking about it and meeting with people and looking at, you know, various ways to intervene. And they're always naturally um, drawn to investing in companies as opposed to, you know, doing the long, messy, slow, frustrating work of um, helping to change policies. And, you know, that sort of, I guess, makes sense coming out of the Silicon Valley ethos. It was sort of like, ah, we can ignore government. We're recreating stuff and innovating. And um, But I, I do think it's a shame because there is a lot you can't accomplish through just investing in companies, which isn't, you know, we need that too. We need it all. Um, but I worry that increasingly we're seeing people have just not a lot of interest in making sure um, that government policies are focused on solving long-term problems and um, addressing things like climate change. And, you know, funding think tanks and, and researchers doing the kind of work that can inform a better government process and decision-making is important. Um, on the metrics, yeah, I have a a big bugaboo about these, like what I call the tyranny of metrics, because if you're if you're only funding things that are easy to measure, you're often not funding the most impactful, important things. So um, easy to measure metrics can they leave little room for a like funding the challenges that take longer or are harder to measure, like policy advocacy, which is messy. Like there are multiple players and unclear causality. So how do you measure that? Um, and of course, like the role of ideas and changing paradigms, that is also really important, but very hard to measure. That's something that, uh, Zachary, you've talked about in terms of the progress network, right? That, uh, you know, if we were to go and, and try to collect funds for TPN, it's hard to say, like, these are the number of minds that we have changed about, you know, a more positive zeitgeist. Like, how exactly do you measure that? You can, right? Six. <laughs> the three people in this room recording right now, and we, it didn't change from anything in the first place, so zero. <laughs> I mean, I think it is important to try, um, but I think the way you describe impact is going to be more complex than like, you know, this many tons of carbon abated in like, you know, whatever quarter or year you're measuring. I think it needs to be a mix of qualitative and quantitative. And I think it's just, it takes a lot more thought and care to design the right metrics. Because if you use the wrong metrics, uh, it can really skew, narrow your your philanthropy. But even metrics, I mean, clearly there are some things that are that are metric friendly. Like we sure. know that for every bed netting given out in a uh, mosquito-ridden malarial area, it will reduce the amount of 
malaria by X. And so if we give out 10,000 nets, we're going to then reduce the amount of malaria by, you know, some mathematical percentage, all of which is quite true and has led to, I mean, the Gates Foundation and others have done a really good job in terms of disease issues because those things are very metric friendly. Um, the problem then is what about things that aren't so metric friendly? And then, you know, it's, it, it may be the issue of you start only looking for metric-friendly things. Right. So in the case of, of bed nets, you know, funding bed nets, wonderful. But what about um, funding, like, the long-term research and policy work to make sure people in countries currently exposed to malaria are lifted out of poverty <laughs> so their homes aren't full of mosquitoes in the long run? You know, it's that kind of, like, Let's raise our ambitions. Think longer term. Think about the re the the more complex um, issues that are you know harder to measure, but potentially more impactful in the long run. Hey, everybody, I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. But hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. <laughs> Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. This morning, Mackenzie Scott, one of the richest women in the world, making good on that pledge to give away the majority of her estimated $59 billion fortune. The ex-wife of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos announcing she and new husband, science teacher Dan Jewett, have donated nearly $3 billion to 286 organizations, including those focused on the arts, education, and combating racial injustice. Rachel, would you say that sort of the tyranny of metrics has any relation to a discomfort with, I don't know if waste is the right word, but like waste or failure or something like that? Um, you know, because we see in the news recently so much Mackenzie Scott seems like she like wakes up, has an espresso, writes a million dollar check, mailed <laughs> it to somebody, has some tote, you know, it's like just money flying around. And my understanding was that there's some 
critique of that in that it's irresponsible and that she's not sure what kind of outcome this money is going to have. But I, yeah, I wanted to get your take on like, is it a discomfort with waste? Is it a discomfort with knowing exactly how the money has had an effect on the thing that you're trying to solve or what is it exactly? By the way, we really like Emma's uh, description of Mackenzie Scott's to-do list <laughs> on a daily basis. Things this to do. how I imagine it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, look, big institutional philanthropy. Um, I have a lot of critiques of what they require of grantees, which is often like incredibly burdensome and time consuming um, proposals and, you know, reports uh, on their progress. And then they take who knows how long to make a decision, basically just consuming grantees time. And, and they often also like want the grantees to create a new special project just for them. So on the positive side, Mackenzie Scott isn't doing any of that, right? There's there's no burdensome time consuming paperwork or process that grantees have to go through. Um, so, you know, she's created a very lean structure. If you're consumed about waste, you could actually say, well, she's not spending all this money on an overhead <laughs> that a lot of big foundations are spending. On the other hand, I think it's it's a little early to judge her strategy in terms of effectiveness. But I will say I I, I kind of doubt it's going to be repeated on a on a big scale, in part because it would put a lot of people out of business in the in the field. There's a lot of people who like depend on a big building full of people who are trying to count metrics and write strategy proposals and do strategy refreshes, and it's like it's a whole field. And and frankly, funders uh, often do want to be more engaged in the work. And get to know the grantees. I mean, I I think I would describe my approach as kind of a third option, which is I spend a lot of time getting to know an issue and then getting to know the people and groups doing work in it uh, that I think is important and effective. And then over time, I develop trust um, with a few core partners who've proven effective. And then I continue, continue to engage closely enough with their work that I have a sense of their strategy um, I can judge their effectiveness and therefore I don't require burdensome, you know, processes of requests or reporting either. And for the most part, I off also offer general operating support because if I trust someone, then I'm going to trust their judgment about what their strategy, you know, should be and where their money should be going. I mean, I love that as an approach and as a way of thinking about it. You know, you get to know people, it's a relationship. It's based on a kind of a trust that you're buying into whatever vision they have. I will say not everyone can do that, you know, for all sorts of reasons. But frankly, one big reason is that it's very time consuming. But isn't it just as time consuming to do all the reports you've talked about in the metrics? I mean, and so what's also the line between like oversight and control? You want some oversight. Maybe, maybe you don't even want some oversight. The Mackenzie Bezos one would suggest, you know, you just you throw enough out there and some things are going to work and some things aren't. And you accept that that's part of it. Then there's yeah. oversight, which is you want to see how they're doing and, and give them some accountability. And then there's control, which is I'm not really interested in giving people money. I'm interested in finding people who will, uh, who will execute projects that I am interested in. Yeah. I think it's also a question of scale. It does become a lot harder when you're giving out massive amounts of money to, I don't know how many, you know, she's given to now, but you know, many, maybe hundreds of organizations like that. And especially if you're doing it at a really rapid pace, 
because again, deeply getting, like getting to know a field, getting to know an issue and the people doing good work in it. Um, that, that takes time. You can't do it at the pace she's doing it. Um, so again, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I, I think there are pros and cons, um, to both approaches. Rachel, something that we have talked about before also with, the in the theme of issues with current philanthropic efforts is that they're not aimed on the long-term, the complex issues. Um, but also you've mentioned before to us that it's focused on the problems itself and not solutions. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Like what kind of solutions would it, would it be nice to see people focusing on? To be honest, I think there's a version of the reverse that may be more what I see, which is, um, or maybe it's more of an issue of sequencing. So I think funders often focus on like a simple, sexy solution rather than spending the time, like I just mentioned, to deeply understand the problems they're trying to solve. Um, first, understanding the problem and all its political, geopolitical, cultural, technological complexity, I think is really key to figuring out like a truly useful approach and frankly, a solution that doesn't accidentally do harm, which is the thing that is possible. Um, but it's a lot harder and more time consuming than just jumping at the first exciting solution. So my favorite example here of this is the socket. <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember this. It was a soccer ball that kids in Africa were meant to kick around, um, which would generate like a little LED light for a couple hours. Uh, I do remember this is coming back to me as you describe it. Yeah. Yeah. As if this is like a meaningful solution to anything, like to energy poverty or even poverty more broadly which would require completely different solutions. You'd have to spend a lot more time figuring them out. Um, and we might not come to them if we're distracted by, you know, the shiny new thing like the socket. But another version of this is, um, I think, asking the wrong or in most cases too narrow or short term a question. Like, how do we stop countries from using coal? Which I think is the wrong question. I think a better question to ask is, how do we get people enough reliable, affordable, clean energy? Because... If our focus is on just stopping coal, then um, that could mean that people just go back down the energy ladder to wood and diesel, which is not better. Or simply, it could mean they have less or no access to energy at all, which in human terms is devastating. So, I mean, if you're not a if you're not focused on human development or poverty, and really single-mindedly only focused on climate change and specifically closing coal you might come to that approach. And importantly, if we're asking the question, how do we get people enough reliable, affordable, clean energy? That is a much more respectful um, approach to communities and countries and their own autonomy. So in the democracy space, we see also a lot of focus on that one simple solution. So in some cases, this is without even a lot of clear evidence. And this is where a lot of the money goes because the democracy space is very complicated. Um, you know, there's not one problem and there's not one solution. So again, I think people get focused. Um, they they want to immediately do something before they've done the research, which I totally understand. And I think it's it's valid to do some like doing while learning, but we shouldn't get sort of locked into the simple answer we came to initially. Um, and this is why I think ongoing learning and and Engaging with people outside our um, political tribe and our issue area expertise um, or even our issue area focus is really important to understand how these other concerns and other approaches and, and ways of viewing the world affect our thinking. 
Um, and in general, I think we should be suspicious of silver bullet solutions. But ultimately, we will need to move into solution mode. So again, it's like a question of, of sequencing. Um, and I don't want to be too disagreeable to your framing. So I'll add that in designing an effective solution set, I think it's also important to look for examples of where we have made progress that we can learn from. So like what approaches have proven effective before, and this might include other times or other places, or even right in our own community. But um, I think especially on the left, we're, we're often afraid to acknowledge where progress has been made for fear that it'll like take away our motivation to address problems um, that we have that still remain. But I think if we miss out on all these lessons where progress has been made, we might miss out on opportunities to take important lessons that would make our current efforts more effective and make solving the problems we still have uh, easier um, to fix. You know, it's funny you mentioned the the kind of the coal issue because certainly in the Ukraine-Russia war or Russia invasion of Ukraine, you know, one issue has been German dependence on and Eastern European dependence on Russian natural gas means that if you're going to make the political decision to sanction Russian natural gas, the only immediate alternative for all these countries is to burn more coal, right? Because, you know, they, as much as they were ahead of the curve in a lot of these environmental issues socially, they didn't really do what you've just said, which is find a reliable, renewable source of energy. They just are, are kind of in the, where do I get my less reliable, less renewable source of energy? Well, I think we should sort of clarify or make some distinctions because there are European countries who've done a great job decarbonizing and aren't relying very much on, on Russian gas or coal. This includes Sweden, which has done a great job in part because they have a lot of natural hydro resources and they have maintained their nuclear. Um, and France, of course, which also has both some hydro and a lot of nuclear. Germany, on the other hand, basically decided they were willing um, to close their nuclear, which just for people who aren't aware, does not emit carbon dioxide, um, and to replace it with Russian gas and to some degree coal as well. So, you know, I think, again, this is like, like you said, it's a good example of if we are focused on a really narrow question and not thinking about the bigger picture we can accidentally end down these like blind alleys that, that, yeah, I mean, if we forget about the geopolitics, which I think Germany really did, uh, we can find ourselves in trouble. And I, I would agree with you that this the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think has reminded people that there is geopolitics in the energy space, which should affect our climate, thing, our thinking about the climate solutions and remind us that our climate solutions are going to have to be in the global context, this is another frustration I have with American and to some degree European philanthropy, which is it looks narrowly at their own country. Um, but these questions are all global or or at least connected to, to global challenges. So, um, you know, uh, it's clear now the, the climate and energy issues are um, global and we can't forget about geopolitics. Like, should we be relying on China to make all our solar panels? Um, that's a challenge. Um, where are we going to get our rare earths for a lot of the renewable um, technologies that require them from, in some cases, some uh, unsavory work practices and sketchy regimes? Um, and these are all things that I don't, you know, I don't think people have fully come to terms with. But 
the Russian invasion also in the democracy space, um, I think has foregrounded even more the fact that this is an urgent and global challenge. It's not just us in the U.S. having a problem. I think there's a real contest between competing governing options and the autocrats are fighting to show their option is superior to our open societies of liberal democracies. So we need to strengthen and defend uh, and make our democracy more effective so that it can provide um, a, mo a model of what of what does work and so that it survives in the long run um, for both us and, and for people everywhere. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. So that's a really good uh, intro segue into bringing in David Callahan of Inside Philanthropy into the discussion, given that he's written about certainly the role of philanthropy in American democracy. And it's, you know, some of the questions, both pro and con that have been, you know, we talked a lot, a little bit about at the beginning of this conversation and this more trenchant observation you just made about what's the role of, of a robust philanthropic community as part of a robust democracy, or at least clearly you do not see much in evidence, robust philanthropic activity in autocratic fascist or authoritarian societies. You'd be, you would be hard pressed other than I suppose, uh, giving on command, which is a bit of a, of a, of a different thing, you know, t tithing as in taxing. So David, on this question of whatever, whatever you've written about and thought about in terms of the, the challenges and some of the tensions inherent in American society today and the nature of philanthropy, what do you make of this idea that uh, that Rachel's right highlighted that a powerful philanthropic culture, giving culture, is a necessary imperative component of a robust democratic culture. I think there's a lot to it. I, I mean, clearly there's a big tension between, on the one hand, philanthropy as a bunch of unaccountable power, right, increasingly wielded by 
a super wealthy elite with endless amounts of money, ambitious plans for public policy, uh, and really kind of aggressive agendas in some areas. On the other hand, uh, that unaccountability is part of the strength, right? Because philanthropy can take risks. Philanthropy can do things the government can't. Philanthropy doesn't have to worry about the bottom line. Um, so you have this kind of dynamic agent of change in society that can do all these things that the other two big sectors in our society can't. And I think that one of the things that philanthropy can do is it can empower voices in, in a democratic society who otherwise wouldn't have allies because they wouldn't find allies in, in the private sector. They might not find allies in, in government, especially if it's a, a, you know, a government that's hostile to, to marginalized views or, or what have you. So, so I definitely think that philanthropy is a strong, strong component of, of democracy, assuming you can get the tension right and it doesn't just become a, yet another tool of kind of plutocratic influence. You know, so far we've been talking a lot about big donors, but, you know, along this line of a culture of charitable giving and the United States and American democracy, there is the point uh, that charitable giving spiked over the pandemic, right, with big donors and with uh, small donors. The New York Times, the second time I've referenced the New York Times, clearly I'm a fan, um, but they had a really good article about this where uh, also direct um, cash transferred spikes between people. Uh, I myself gave money to random people I didn't know during the pandemic to support artists. So you know, I was wondering if either of you could say a little bit about that, the, the culture of charitable giving when it comes to smaller donors, grassroots donors. I would, just, yeah, just two quick things. I would say, you know, obviously philanthropy can be a positive and natural response to suffering. On the question of like, you know, well, it spiked even in a time of crisis. Sure, but it's worth noting that it was likely aided in large measure because the stock market rose and government put cash in people's pockets, which enabled some of this generosity because during the Great Recession, charitable giving decreased. You know, Emma, the unfortunate trend over the last 20 years has been less giving by ordinary Americans and the role of the small donor becoming less and less significant in philanthropy. And that's a very troublesome trend. And it's driven by a couple of factors. Scholars have tried to figure it out. One is the fact that most of the income gains of the past 20 years have gone to the top 10%. And so meanwhile, the ordinary middle-class Americans have been crushed by rising healthcare costs, higher ed costs, and, and, and all the rest. And so there's just not a lot of kind of extra money in the pocket of, of Americans. Meanwhile, the wealthy have, you know, are richer than ever before, have more and more assets to sort of bring to bear to philanthropy. And um, so that's kind of produced this kind of top-heavy philanthropic sector that I think is a real cause for concern. Um, on the other hand, there's a lot of interesting initiatives underway to try to catalyze giving by by smaller donors, giving circles being one example, donor advised funds for all of the kind of controversy they've caused, I think have, a, have uh, worked to democratize philanthropy in ways there's about a million donor advised funds at this point compared to about 100,000 private foundations. Uh, and so if you think about like analogizing philanthropy to politics, one of the good things that's happened in politics in the last 10 or 15 years is the rise of small donors, right? Like you don't, 
there's all these animated small donors in politics who allow politicians to get funded without going to corporations and wealthy donors. And, you know, Bernie Sanders wouldn't have been able to run for run for president without all those small donors. The dark side, of course, you have somebody like Marjorie Green, who gets a lot of money from small donors. But in philanthropy, if we could see a real kind of upsurge in lots of uh, giving by small donors, it could help kind of balance out that top heavy philanthropy we're seeing today. I mean, that's great to hear. I'm happy for my son and you to have been wrong so that we could end with the, the inspiring message of, okay, guys, let's all rise up together. Um, I mean, I know, Zachary, you've made the, the point before that Americans being flush with cash and the pandemic releasing so much spending from governments made a very unusual but beneficial times. Yeah, and that's clearly going to fade into 2023 and 2024. I mean, we'll see if it's it's replaced by its own self-sustaining organic giving on the part, particularly of those who have. And look, I mean, it is certainly true what you know David said about the trend line. It's also true that even with that trend line, the United States does remain a largely charitable nation relative to many other countries in the world. Um, relative to itself, the trend lines are not as positive. And I guess, I, you know, it, I do wonder in this from both of you, because part of the tension that's expressed and often articulated to its nth degree is the needs that big philanthropy tries to meet are needs that government ought to have met. I mean, that's often the, assum- the assumption within the critique is it's a civil society and political failing that large philanthropists have to play the role they do or ultimately do play some of the role they do. And as you've pointed out, David, in your writing, there's a selectivity to what you know big philanthropy wants to address versus other social needs that go unmet. But do we really feel that it, you know that we would want to live in a society where every single major social, political, economic inequity, imbalance problem was met by government? I mean, I think this is like a version of should philanthropy exist at all that we discussed before, which I think um, there are many reasons that um, it's useful to have a philanthropic sector. And as David said, there are benefits to having a sector that can experiment. I would argue maybe it isn't as experimental as it should be. There's a lot of group think and a lot of blind spots, uh, you know, based on that group think. But I think the idea of like government doing everything is a little scary to me, particularly in this moment, because I'm reading Anne Applebaum's Iron Curtain about how the Soviets crushed civil society, you know, and many other things um, in Eastern Europe. And they were very targeted and specific in going after all civil society. Churches, the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts were a huge focus that they had to shut down, corrupt, you know, make sure it was part of the government program. Um, So, uh, of course, um, I think government should be more effective. I want it to be more effective. I want it to be able to do its job. Like, like I said before, I want it to be able to fund, sufficiently fund election administration. And we shouldn't have philanthropy doing that. On the other hand, there are all sorts of um, things that I, that I think it's great. Philanthropy can sort of, you know, fund research that may not pan out. Would we want government taking that risk? Probably not. Yeah, and I would just echo that to say the smart philanthropists go where government won't, right? So you see in medical research, like the NIH has a $36 billion a year 
budget, right? If you're a smart philanthropist investing in medical research, you don't fund the kind of stuff that the NIH funds, right? You fund the kind of stuff that the NIH won't fund because it is too risk averse. And uh, in fact, the, the open philanthropy, which is funded by Dustin Moskovitz, one of the co-founders of Facebook, once had a round of grants where they gave a bunch of money to uh, all these rejected proposals from the NIH saying, this is good stuff. The NIH is too cautious. We're going to fund this. The bad thing is when philanthropy feels it has no choice but to step in to take care of shortfalls created by government's fiscal lack of capacity or government's lack of, of innovative or, or just pure functional capacity. So most extreme example of that in the city of Kalamazoo, one of these sort of battered, you know, post-industrial uh, cities in Michigan, uh, the fiscal situation was so bad that a, a couple philanthropists stepped up and put up, put up tens of millions of dollars to kind of do basic things in the city and then raised a bunch of other money from philanthropists just to keep like Kalamazoo afloat. And my concern is we're going to see a lot more Kalamazoo's going forward because if you think about the long-term trajectory, the fiscal squeeze on government is going to get worse at every level. All those state and local pension fund obligations, as they kick in, there's going to be more states and localities that are just completely uh, uh, squeezing out all of their uh, sort of discretionary social spending and educational spending and park spending to fund their pension entitlements. And the same thing is going to happen to the federal government. And so you're going to have this situation where wealthy people have more and more money than ever and are more and more active in philanthropy at the exact same time that an aging population is squeezing the capacity of government at all levels. And I think it's going to transfer more power um, to to the philanthropic sector. Now, on the one hand, that's great in the sense that at least there'll be somebody to bail us out uh, when we can't meet basic needs, somebody to fund the national park system. Uh, uh, on the other hand, it's it's worrisome in terms of who's in the driver's seat of U.S. society. So on that, it's funny, I'll, I'll segue into what about those areas where some philanthropic activity has both highlighted a major systemic failing that it is government created. So you talked about bailing out society. What about the bail project, which was a you know a huge endeavor to say, look, far too many people are being uh, arrested in particularly urban areas who can't pay fines, who then are put into the criminal justice system and you know in those parts of the country where there's bail, can't make bail and end up essentially being entered into an incarceral system without ever having been convicted of or committed any crime. So we're going to pay for bail. Part of that led to you know massive bail reform in states like New York, which is, itself is now undergoing huge amounts of political pushback um, because of some of the unintended consequences. Same thing in California. We're hearing from the Bail Project. For several weeks now, the police union and lawmakers have targeted this nonprofit after clients of it bailed out of jail and then went on to commit local violent crimes. Now, the Bail Project is fighting back, saying the criticism they're receiving is unfair. They tell 13 Investigates reporter Sierra Putman that they don't just bail people out of jail, but they also send court reminders. They provide transportation and some other valuable services. I mean, certainly that 
you would think in many ways, even though the bail project, by the way, in our conversation with Rachel earlier, is is was conceived very much in the definition of scalable and measurable and repeatable and you know, it fit fit the bill perfectly for that kind of philanthropy. But it 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 highlighted a failing of government. Charter schools to some degree, you know, highlight some of the failings of public education. Um, and then what about areas like Dan Gilbert, the founder of Quicken, who in a totally kind of non-directly philanthropic way becomes part of the redevelopment of downtown Detroit because of his willingness to invest money in an area that neither government nor most private businesses are willing to invest in. You know, where do those fall on these particular spectrums? I mean, I would say the same thing I said about um, philanthropy having to fund elections. It's probably good we have it, but in an ideal world, they wouldn't have to. Like, I, I wish government was doing a better job, was more fair, was funding, you know, sufficiently the things that matter. Um, and this is in part why we have spent so much time and energy with a network of people from across the ideological spectrum, with a wide range of issue area expertise to think like about how we got into this um political dysfunction, this democratic decline, and and where are the solutions that are long-term that, are, that can address some of the underlying problems? Because I worry if we're only focused on the Band-Aid level, we're in trouble. Yeah. And I think the criminal justice example is, is a good one in terms of government uh, uh, philanthropy intervening in a sector where all the incentives were aligned behind a business-as-usual model that was highly destructive. I mean, once all those draconian sentencing uh, laws were were passed in in the in the eighties and nineties, you know, there weren't a lot of incentives for politicians to undo them, right? And so this was this is kind of a monster going on autopilot, and then you have a, a, a number of, of pretty bold philanthropists stepping up. Uh, I think of uh, uh, John and, and Laura Arnold as two examples of. And philanthropists have really plunged into that criminal justice sector to try to kind of stop that, you know, this this kind of government on uh, on on autopilot incarcerating huge huge numbers of people. And, and I think that it, that it's been successful uh, and kind of really philanthropy has played a catalytic role in kind of changing the debate. In other areas, philanthropy has gotten kind of nowhere. So housing is a great example, or homelessness, two issues that are really acute in California, where philanthropy keeps trying to do stuff uh, with kind of limited traction because of the, the kind of dysfunction around housing in, in, in many places is so, is so entrenched, this kind of interplay between zoning and costs and, and nimbyism and, and, um, and philanthropy uh, it, for all of its efforts just doesn't have enough kind of muscle to get in there and kind of uh, correct for a, a, a real shortcoming of the of the public sector. I think there's also been a lot of groupthink in the efforts of trying to dro- address the housing and homelessness problems. And they're not issues I, I work on, but I think, you know, I don't know um, all the details here, but I think a lot of funders have failed to look again at the sort of longer term um, challenges that got us here, not, you know, a year ago, not even five years ago, but it's been like, 40 years, we haven't been building the housing we've needed to make up for sort of the jobs we're adding and fundamentally changing the zoning restrictions um, is hard because you have all sorts of political reasons to maintain them. So 
government at various levels, city, state, um, has reasons to maintain all this restrictive zoning. Um, and I think a lot of funders were just like, let's focus on, you know, we'll put all this money into um, low-income housing, which on its own is fine, but it's not sort of doing the hard, deep, engaging with the politics at, at the state and local level to allow us to build more housing. Um, so, you know, the the group, the pros and cons, like there, there's a, you rely on philanthropy um, in the case of bail to like, because it can experiment and isn't as accountable, it it can point, it can find things that really need changing that as, as you said, David, no other actor in the system was willing or able to do. Um, but here, I think there is also the same group think in government as in philanthropy in some, in some areas. And I, and I just worry that if one of the um, things we rely on philanthropy to do is to be innovative and to be able to do that thing that would help society that government and business can't do, it's not always stepping up. I'm curious if either of you uh, have any thoughts, you know, just, just going back to what David said about who's in the driver's seat. I'm thinking about this one particular person. He's like 30 years old. He has a crypto fortune. He's living in his van because he wants to give all of his fortune away. You know, are people like this is a sub someone we should look to for this kind of innovative non-group think thinking um, or should we expect more of the same, you know, going into the future? What do you, what do you two think about that? Well, I do think that there's a lot of interesting philanthropists coming on the scene and I don't think it's a coincidence that many of them are coming onto the scene from the tech sector. And they are people who, you know, have made their money by thinking outside the box, disrupting key industries, uh, you know, in Wall Street, you make a lot of money uh, often by just having having asset, more and more assets under management over a longer and longer period of time. Real estate fortunes tend to be made over many decades. You know, in, in tech, you often make your money by coming up with something really disruptive and, and uh, powerful. Uh, and so when those kinds of people turn to philanthropy, they often want to do things very differently. You know, and I, I don't think it's... Um, Surprising, for example, that the push for universal basic income has attracted so many people from the tech sector who want to basically disintermediate the whole social services and, and, and global aid uh, sector by saying, hey, let's get rid of all these middlemen who, uh, who, who help poor people at home and around the world. And let's just give the money directly to, to poor people and let's, let's research that. And, and and uh, so I, I think that that has been a really cool and hopeful dynamic. I don't want to overplay it because if you look at many of these tech philanthropists over time, they start to behave a, a lot more like traditional philanthropists. And maybe to Rachel's point, some of them get sort of sucked into a group think or they get sort of embedded in the traditional sort of philanthropic sector and hire philanthropists to do their giving and no longer as, as dynamic as they might be. So final question for both of you. If we're having this conversation in 10 years, is the conversation any different given current trends or is it simply more acute um, in that more agglomerations of wealth at the very high end more expectation on the part of those. And again, I, I realize this is something I've harped on a bit in this conversation, but you know, the American billionaire class uh, certainly 
is more inclined to leave large amounts of money than the equivalent groups of people in China or India or Russia or Brazil. And, you know, I suppose you could say, so what to that? You know, that's like making a, a, a comparison of, of relative moral grays doesn't really get you anywhere, but it is worth looking that this is a, a global human phenomenon, not just an American issue per se, you know, what to do with, a large amount of wealth at the top, or is there, yeah, you know, we talked a bit about, about giving circles and sort of, uh, it's been true, as you said, in politics, individual donors giving $5 to their candidate in a way that if you have a lot of people doing that ends up being some significant amount of money for a short time. So are we, are we having the same conversation in 10 years? Do you think? I don't think we're ever having the same conversation 10 years, um, ahead of whenever you ask the question. <laughs> um, that is I a don't... very wise answer, by the way. <laughs> Um, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball, but I do, I am, I am deeply worried about where we're headed politically, geopolitically. It just feels like we're heading into a potentially rocky year, uh, you know, number of years, however many they, they are. Um, and I think inequality is definitely one of the drivers, um, of some of this, you know, just what feels like real global outrage. And it's not just here. It's, you're, you know, you're seeing um, frustrations bubbling to the top and um, a lack of trust in various institutions, but in particular in governments all over the world. And so I don't, um, you know, I don't think the philanthropic sector alone is big enough um, to countervail all of that, but I would love to see more funders take the time to understand how complex the moment we're in. Like, we didn't get into this political, cultural stew that we're in now overnight, and, and we're not going to get out of it um, tomorrow. So I think um, if philanthropy can really think long and hard and get out of their own sort of tribal, ideological, and frankly toxic partisan um, and high conflict approaches, then they would be able to actually help um, address some of these underlying challenges that um, are not going to be the the quick, easy, sexy, most obvious thing in front of them. So that's my hope, is that they do more of that. I think in 10 years, one exciting thing is we'll be talking about a lot more global philanthropy because you know, there's 2,500 billionaires in the world, maybe a quarter of them live in the United States. And I think we're going to see a real upsurge in philanthropy worldwide. And that, I think, is going to be really interesting to watch and um, a place like Africa and India and China, Southeast Asia. Um, here in the United States, I think that the conversation we've been having about uh, government pulling back as philanthropy steps forward is going to become a lot more acute. I think we're going to see more Kalamazoo's. I think we're going to see more kind of big initiatives by philanthropy to kind of uh, compensate for government's failings as 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 either polarization and or polarization dysfunction, you know, lack of fiscal capacity all make government uh, less capable. Um, and hopefully, in ten years, we're not going to be talking about a new era of crisis philanthropy. You know, I, I think that Rachel's right. We're heading into a rocky period, and you know, if if our democracy falls apart, uh, you could have philanthropy really as a weaponized part of a, of a civil war of some kind. And um, don't even really want to think about that, but um, 
you know, in many ways, philanthropy is is already kind of on the front lines of our civil discord on both sides. And you could see a significant escalation of that. Or, you know, I liked Rachel's, the, the idea of there are, there are significant societal challenges and problems that are not amenable to, I will spend X amount of money now and see a tangible explicit result in a specific short time frame that I can then say, look, this is what that money did, as opposed to the more systemic things. And certainly, you know, part of the point of the Progress Network was uh, there will never be an upsurge of constructive news. It, you know, it is it is a structural impossibility given the incentives of contemporary media. Full stop. But that doesn't mean you can't try to change the tenor of the conversation. It just means you have to make the effort to do so with the belief. I think that you can substantiate that it, that it does have a constructive outcome, but not in that immediately I said this and it got that amount of attention or I spent this and it had this kind of result. And so I think that's where, you know, the best of this lies. Um, and, and while it's certainly true that philanthropy can as a neutral be used and abused in a highly partisan toxic environment, it can also be a bulwark as Rachel's pointed out. Uh, against a partisan and toxic environment, like any good tool, right? Anyway, thank you both for having this conversation. I don't think these are as 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 vital as these issues are, and as much as it kind of occupies a lot of people's mind space, it's not something that a lot of people ever talk about in a focused way. So I'm glad you've had the conversation, and I know David, you you know you have a bread and butter platform that does talk about these in a focused way, but that's also often talking within a world of people who are focused on these things. It's it's interesting that we don't have these conversations in a more, um, you know, non-inside baseball way. So hopefully this is the first and not the last. <laughs> but thank you both for having the conversation with us, uh, with each other and with the world. Thank you. Thanks, Zachary. Thank you both. So Emma, I thought that was a really stimulating conversation. Of course, I thought it was a really stimulating conversation. All of our conversations are stimulating. Or so we hope. Or so we hope. That was done, I mean, you can't really tell in, in audio. That was done with a wry, self-deprecating smile. One thing we didn't get into, and it kind of occurred to me at the end, was what does that leave you know, most of us individually to do? Um, given that most of us individually make a series of choices of I've got a limited pot of money that I want to be able to utilize constructively for the greater social good. You have this world that's increasingly dominated by you know, billionaires and millionaires giving away huge chunks of money. What then to do, right? Am I supposed to give a little bit to a whole bunch of organizations? Am I supposed to give a lot to a few? Am I supposed to throw up my hands like it doesn't really matter anyway because it's too little? Other than the political we talked about, which is which was quite an interesting evolution where people I think realized collectively because they were being, you know, told it collectively that if a lot of people give a little money, it's a lot of money. Right. I mean that's kind of what David was pointing at in the middle, right? Which I thought was useful for myself as a small new small donor. You know, five years ago I didn't have any money to give away. Now I have a little bit of money to give away. And um for me, it was like, okay, can I identify where I might be a part of a swelling wave, right? Uh, and he mentioned Bernie Sanders. I think other listeners on the left might identify someone like Stacey Abrams, where you see that there are a lot of 
smaller donors coming together. If you can see that wave starting to gather steam, that would be a great place to throw, you know, a little bit of money. Um, so that was one thing for me. And also just, you know, I mentioned this in the middle as well, you know, with COVID, there was a, a initiative that I joined where you sent $10 in the middle of the pandemic to an artist that you don't know they don't know who you are. You just Venmo them the money because you know they aren't getting paid right now. And that was, for me, really powerful. Um, it's not gonna lead to large societal change. And of course, that was a very unusual moment. But the act of knowing that was just going directly into someone's pockets, which you know we talked about as well, was was really powerful, just on a psychological level for me. Yeah, and then there are things like GoFundMe, right? Where people just, I mean, sometimes that's for an entrepreneurial thing, but often it's for somebody saying, hey, I really need X, or I wanna do that. A lot of that was being done. Uh, around the immediate response to Ukraine and when what can people do? There were a lot of GoFundMe campaigns. And again, we didn't get into this in the conversation, but none of that money, the money that you just talked about for someone who needed something during the pandemic or these GoFundMe campaigns, are show up in a in a 5013C tax exempt fashion, right? These are just people saying, look, I there is a need here, I can help. I'm not gonna get any benefit. In, in like my taxes from this, it's just the right thing to do and it's something I can do right now. And I think that, you know, again, if we could have had another hour talking about this, the whole crowdfunding and crowdsourcing of needs, some of which is purely, hey, you know, I wanna start this cool company. Um, but a lot of which, you know, we talked about this last year when we, we had the conversation about Kickstarter, right? Uh, in one of our episodes in season one of What Could Go Right. I wonder what you think about the more uh, you know, Rachel in particular is animated by a, a real sense that, that we're on a precipice, a democratic precipice, David too. Um, and that that puts philanthropy in kind of a, a crucial moment of potentially keeping us from going off that precipice. You know, uh, to be honest, I hadn't thought about that from a positive perspective at all. You know, when Rachel in the beginning called out the Koch brothers, that's the perspective that I'm used to hearing and swimming in is these mega rich people that don't have a lot of accountability, you know, and, and David mentioned that as a strength and also a weakness. I'm very used to hearing about that as a weakness. Just pouring money into the system, you, you're seeing that's having a negative effect, but you can't trace it back, you know, and so seeing that in the reverse is actually very difficult for me. I. I I took Rachel's point that um, in autocratic societies, they often shut down philanthropy. But on the other hand, I'm hard pressed to point out a philanthropic effort in the United States that I know of, that's not to say that they don't exist, but that, that people know of that's on you know the frontier of saving democracy. Actually, unless I'm thinking about some of our own TPM members like Braver Angels, which I'm sure is funded in part by philanthropic efforts. And, and the criminal justice reform, you know, one of the only right. bills that was bipartisan to come out of the Trump era was a whole criminal justice bill at the end of 2018, partly funded by the Kochs, but partly funded by Soros, and was a strange uh, meeting of multi-partisan perspectives around a societal issue that was perceived to be just destructive for, doesn't matter whether you were Republican, Democrat, far right or far left, that there was a more of a consensus of this is a major issue and, and was in many ways sponsored philanthropically. So. It's hard to find these examples and they don't get the attention of dark money, you know, again, back yeah. to our whole mantra of conspiracies and 
dark thoughts get more attention than collaboration and good news, the same thing is true in these areas. And it's something I think to think about when we think about what these these pools of money, not always accountable and not always evident and not always transparent, can actually lead us to a conversation that maybe we should in fact revisit because it is so woven into many of the other issues we have been talking about. So, And you're so right that people don't talk about it very much. And yet, here we are. Thanks for having the conversation, as always, Emma. Yeah, thank you, Zachary. If you want to find out more information about The Progress Network and what could go right, please visit our website at theprogressnetwork.org. And if you want something other than gloom and doom when you open your email in the morning, you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's a roundup of progress news from around the world. And that's at theprogressnetwork.org slash newsletter. And please, if you like the show, if you could tell a friend, share an episode, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, that would help us out a ton. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and Emma Barber Lucas. The show is produced by Andrew Stephen and edited by Jordan Aaron, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Puglomerate. Thank you so much for listening.